Father, um, thank you um, again for this day. Lord, this, this building that you have given us um, to gather together to worship you in, Lord. Um, it is a blessing that we have this place and that we can come together um, publicly um, and worship you. And so I praise you for that and I thank you for that, Lord. I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us through your word, um, through through Ruth this morning. Lord, and you would do so for, for your glory and that you would be glorified as you continue to, one, call many to salvation, and two, as you continue to sanctify those whom you have saved. Again, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus. I ask these things in your name for your sake. Amen. If you would turn with me to Ruth chapter 3, if you haven't already had the opportunity to grab an outline, um, there are some more, maybe, over on the, uh, the stand there by, by the door. Um, as you're turning to Ruth chapter 3, um, if you recall, um, well, I think it was three, uh, two months ago, sorry, two months ago, let's see, last month we considered, um, we looked at the gracious God of Ruth, right? But, but a month before that, we considered the provident God of Ruth, and, and that was chapter 2. And as we finished chapter 2, we talked about God's provision of, of the kinsman redeemer, and so what I want to do this morning as we begin chapter 3 is I want to just briefly review or briefly cover again this, this provision of the kinsman redeemer that, that God had made. Now, the provision um, for the kinsman redeemer, right, it provided one for physical, physical redemption, if, if you will, okay? And it provided that one's nearest of kin could step in and buy back. To buy back means to redeem, or to redeem means to buy back. So they could step in and redeem or buy back what his or her relative was forced to sell. Now, one thing about the kinsman redeemer, this was not only a, a responsibility, a duty, but it was also to be a delight for the kinsman redeemer, the one who would, in fact, step in to, to redeem. So it was to be both a duty and a delight. Now, a few of the, the, the circumstances where a kinsman redeemer would step in would be as follows. One, if a person was in overwhelming debt, his kinsman redeemer was to step in and to satisfy the debts. Two, if a person was forced to sell his belonging, his kinsman redeemer was to buy back that which was, was sold. And the third one, and this is where Ruth and, and Naomi find themselves in, okay? Um, if one died without an heir, right? and that was the situation with, with Ruth and Naomi, right? They were both widows, right? Um, Naomi married to Elimelech, right? Elimelech died, Ruth married to Mahlon, and, and Mahlon died, right? So both Ruth and Naomi are widows without heirs. Um, Naomi has no other children, right? So she has no other sons for, for Ruth to marry, okay? And so again, in this circumstance, if one died without an heir, so that's Ruth and Naomi, a kinsman redeemer would marry the widow and rear a son to hand down the family name. So in the circumstance um, or situation of Ruth and Naomi, um, Naomi wasn't an option, okay, as far as marriage. She, she was old, okay? She was, was too old, not necessarily for marriage, but, but most likely too old for a son, for an heir. So, so Ruth, in, in their scenario, would be the one that would be seeking, if you will, 
a kinsman redeemer, one to marry her, to give a son, to hand down, right, the family name, to have an heir, okay? Now, um, the kinsman redeemer in the redemptive process, okay, would step in and do for the one in need of redemption that which only the kinsman redeemer could do. So simply put, one couldn't redeem his or herself. Okay, So the one in need of redemption was incapable of redeeming himself or herself. Again, in the, in the case of Ruth and Naomi, they couldn't, they couldn't redeem themselves. There was nothing they could do. Right? Um, they needed someone to step in and act on their behalf to redeem them. Now, the requirements of the kinsman redeemer. Again, I'm not going over the scripture references. I know we covered this um, in our Sunday school class months ago. We looked at it two months ago, okay? So I'll just let you review your notes if you want to as far as the scripture references um, um, for these. But the requirements of the kinsman redeemer, if you recall, is they must be near of kin, must be able to redeem, okay? must be willing to redeem, and also, the redemption was complete when the price was fully paid. And if you recall when we first look at, looked at this, or we've looked at it twice now, but when we've looked at this, this position, um, this provision, if you will, of kinsman redeemer, right, we said that the kinsman redeemer was a type, right, in relation to Christ, right? We've talked about types, we've talked about shadows, okay? The kinsman redeemer was a type, one a position, but an individual in this position, right, who ultimately points towards the coming Christ, Messiah. We talked about how Boaz, right, as a type, a kinsman redeemer, pointed forward ultimately to Jesus, who is the ultimate, right, kinsman redeemer, the, right, capital V, the kinsman redeemer. Redeemer. Again, this provision in the Old Testament of kinsman redeemer was for physical redemption, right? But the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, would come and provide not physical redemption, though there is going to be a physical redemption someday, right? I mean, there is. Christ is going to return, right? And when he returns and he raises up those who are his, right, raises up their bodies, we are going to have new bodies, right? And in that, there is a physical redemption coming, okay? But again, this, this type, speaking of in the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus, right? Ultimately, the kinsman redeemer, more important than any physical redemption, would bring spiritual redemption. Now, we've talked about the type. We've considered the type, right? Kinsman redeemer, pointing forward to Christ. Well, in Ruth, right, not only do we have a type, okay, but we also have a shadow. And we've talked about types and shadows. For those who are visiting in our Sunday school, our adult equipping hour, over the past several months, we've been going through the Old Testament, and we've been going through the Old Testament examining the various types and shadows of the Old Testament, looking forward, pointing forward to Christ. So in Ruth, not only do we have a type, kinsman redeemer, Boaz, right, but we also have a shadow. The redemption that, the physical redemption that, that Ruth and Naomi, okay, experience through Boaz 
serves as a shadow of the spiritual redemption, right? That the right kinsman redeemer Christ brings to all those whom he saves. So in the next two sermons, which for me is this month today, and then it's going to be the last Sunday of, of December, right? We're going to consider this the shadow, okay? The, 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 the redemption that Naomi and Ruth experience as a shadow of the spiritual redemption that Christ was going to bring, and in our case, that Christ has brought. There's, there's three things. Actually, there's one thing before we actually move into today's text. There's, there's one thing, there's any one thing, actually, that I want you to remember or to think about when you think about the book of Ruth, when you read the book of Ruth, when you, when you study Ruth, when you hear the name Ruth. Oh, hi, my name's so-and-so. My name's Ruth, or this is my wife. Her name's Ruth. I want you to think Christ, okay? The book of Ruth is about Christ. We have Christ in the type. As we're going to examine today and next month, right? we're going to see Christ in this shadow, right? in this redemptive process. Okay. And then the very last verse, actually I think last two verses, okay, speak to or address the lineage of David. Right? And I think Samuel, when he wrote Ruth, I think he put that in there in part specifically, right, justifying, if you will, um, or giving legitimacy to, to, to David as king. But more than that, and more importantly than that, right, it addresses the lineage of Christ, not only through David, which is huge, right? But also the lineage of Christ through a woman who was born in the land of Moab, a horrible pagan land. So we see this, this, this Gentile blood in the line of Christ, just as we've seen with um, others as well. So when you think of Ruth, think Christ. We've got the type, we've got the shadow, and then we've got the lineage. Okay. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore... And anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, the she being Ruth, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi had this plan, right, to get married, uh, to get Ruth, sorry, married. And she says this, she says, should I not seek rest, right, for you? By rest, she's talking about marriage, okay? Should I not seek rest for you? So here's what I want you to do. Get all dolled up, right? Put on your best, get cleaned up, and put on your best, and go to Boaz, okay, and do exactly 
as I tell you to do. Now, Ruth and Naomi, right, they were already, from a spiritual perspective, okay, if you will, saved at this point. We talked about that in, I think it was the second sermon, the, the, um, the Sovereign God of Ruth, right? We talked about uh, Ruth's profession of faith, right, when she said to Naomi, right, no, Naomi, I'm not going to leave you, right, as you've requested. I'm going to stay with you, and I'm going to go wherever you go, and your people are going to be my people, right? And your God's going to be my God. And again, that was, that was Ruth's profession of, of faith, right? Evidence, if you will, of her faith, right? And we also talked about Naomi, right? And evidence of, of Naomi's faith. And again, I think the evidence of Naomi's faith was, was, is, is, was, is primarily seen through Ruth, right? So again, Ruth and Naomi, they're not in need of spiritual redemption, right? They're in need of physical redemption, and in, and in this first part of chapter 3, right, via this plan of, of redemption, what we see with Ruth and Naomi is we see their clear acknowledgement, right, or a clear acknowledgement that they need redemption, right? And we know that they need this physical redemption, right? We considered where they were in Moab, right, without husbands, God provides, sends them back to Israel, right? And here they are, you know, poor, right? Destitute, right? Gleaning in the fields just to, just to survive, right? So they're acutely aware of the fact that they need this physical redemption. Now, just as, okay, Naomi and Ruth need physical redemption, right? All mankind needs spiritual redemption. Again, this is where we start to see the shadow, right? The shadow, their, their physical redemption pointing, pointing towards the spiritual redemption that, that all mankind needs, right? And that those whom Christ saves, receives. And we know that man is born spiritually dead. Let's look at Romans Romans chapter 5. And Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and even so, death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Right? So sin entered the world through Adam. And in Adam, because of Adam right, and the fall of man, all are born in sin. All are born spiritually dead. But not, not only is it that every one of us was born spiritually dead, right? all of us have what experientially sinned as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. says what? Now Paul here, again, he's referring to Christians, and he's referring to Christians and the state that they once were, Okay, so if you were a Christian, this is the state in which you once were. And if you are not, this is the state in which you 
are. He says, and you were what? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were spiritually dead. So when he's referring to believers saying, before God saved you, before God redeemed you, you were spiritually dead. Man apart from Christ is spiritually dead, born in that condition, remains apart from Christ in that condition, and is in need of redemption. We know that all have sinned, right? Paul proclaimed it in Romans um, chapter 5 as we look. We know that he says the same thing in Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. And all one needs to do, right, is to examine himself, herself, against God's law to see that this is so, right? Um, Galatians 3.24 3.24 says, So then, the law was our guardian, your version might say tutor or schoolmaster, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Right? We use God's law right, to see that we're guilty of breaking God's law. And being guilty of breaking God's law, we are in need of spiritual redemption. When one examines himself against God's moral law, again, use the Ten Commandments, right? You shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, covet, lust, slash adultery, murder, slash hate, right? One who dishonors his mother and father, right? We compare ourselves against God's law. We see that we've violated that law, which is a reflection of the lawgiver, who is God, Right? And as a result, we're, we're guilty. As a result of our guilt, we deserve God's wrath, which is just, because he is holy. Now back in Romans, in Romans 6, 23, and I'm not going to turn there, you can if you want. We know what Paul says, right? For the wages of sin is death, Right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the result of sin, we can go all the way back to the garden, right? God says to Adam, disobey me. It's basically what he said, right? Eat this fruit, eat from that tree, but disobey me. Sin, and in that day you will surely die. And again, we know that Adam didn't die physically that day, right? We know that the process began that moment that they sinned, Right? But he didn't die physically that day, okay? But the promise was there. You will die physically because of your sin. But in that day that Adam died, he also died spiritually. In that day that Adam sinned, he died spiritually. And that spiritual death, that separation from God, now the inability to do anything spiritually, to reconnect himself, if you will, to God, spiritually to please God, right? In that moment that Adam sinned, he was spiritually dead, completely spiritually separated from God and unable in and of himself to do anything to change that. So in Romans 3.23, again, Paul says, right, 
The wages of sin is death. Okay? So everyone's going to die physically. Right? And again, we said that our kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, right? though he comes to redeem spiritually, someday he is going to redeem physically. And those who are his will be raised with new bodies. Okay? But those who die physically in a state of spiritual death okay, will experience eternal spiritual death, eternal separation from God, where God pours out his righteous wrath, and that righteous wrath is never satisfied, thus it is eternal. So you see, man, because of sin, apart from Christ, is in need of spiritual redemption, just as Ruth and Naomi were in need of physical redemption. Let's go back to Ruth, chapter 3. Look at our second point. The first point, if you don't have an outline that we just considered in verses 1 through 5, okay, was the primary need. I think, no, the principal need is what I had written down. The principal need for redemption, right? Ruth and Naomi had this principal need for physical redemption. So all mankind has this principal need for spiritual redemption. And the next point, if you have an outline, if you don't have an outline, is the plea for Redemption, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 of Ruth chapter 3, is the plea for redemption. Verse 6, so she, again, talking of, of Ruth here, says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, just means that he was satisfied, he didn't get, get drunk, okay? When, when Boaz was satisfied from a hard day's work and a good meal, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Goel, a kinsman redeemer. One of ours. You are a redeemer. Okay. So Ruth does what, what Naomi commands. She goes to Boaz quietly, respectfully, secretly in the night, and literally lays down at his feet. There was, there was nothing improper uh, about what she did, okay? Nothing improper or dishonorable happened in that interchange. There are some liberal commentators who like to read into this in disgusting ways, okay? But that's not the case, right? In a way that was um, according to custom, Ruth, with, with respect and honor and dignity, quietly, softly, went to Boaz in the night as he slept, literally, 
uncovered his feet and laid at his feet. And when Boaz awoke, Naomi pled for redemption. Specifically, she pled for redemption through, through marriage. What, Ni- what Naomi, I might be confusing the names here, what Ruth had done, right, was essentially a marriage, uh, a marriage proposal, right, in, in a God-honoring way, okay, is what she had done. Right, but again, I, I I don't and one us I don't I don't like the I mean it was a marriage proposal she was saying you know marry me but it, it wasn't like we think of it today okay so I almost don't even want to think about that and as I was studying and I'm working through my notes I'm like I don't even like to put that down because then my mind goes to how people propose and modern you know our culture and society and 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 uh, sappy whatever ways and this wasn't what Ruth was doing Ruth was pleading. For Boaz to redeem her and to redeem her through marriage. The natural man. By natural man, I mean the non-believer, the one who is not a Christian, the one who is spiritually dead. Again, if you are a believer, right, that was you before Christ saved you, right? A natural man, spiritually dead. If you're not a believer, that is you now. And the natural man spiritually is in the same condition that Ruth was in physically, right? In desperate need of redemption. And just as Ruth pled for physical redemption by Boaz, so all men, all men, need to plead for spiritual redemption by Jesus Christ, who is the kinsman redeemer. Now, this plea that men must make to Christ for spiritual redemption, right? It's not a marriage proposal like, like Ruth made, right? Again, I hate that marriage proposal, but, but it's not, right? This plea that men must make for Christ or to Christ for spiritual redemption comes through repentance and faith. It's a crying out to Christ to save you repentantly with faith, just as Ruth cried out to Boaz for him to save her, to redeem her. Now as we examine um, briefly here repentance and faith... I want you to, to understand that repentance and faith are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they're never exclusive. In fact, they are inclusive. You cannot have one without the other. R.C. Sproul points out that faith and repentance can be distinguished for the sake of instruction. However, they can never be separated. You know, when I read that quote from him, I thought of the Trinity, right? How we, we can distinguish, right, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right, as individual persons, but as God, we can never separate them, right? Well, repentance and faith can be distinguished, and I know that's a pretty strong analogy, right, but I think it holds, 
okay? Uh, comparing repentance and faith and their inseparability to comparing the triune God and his inseparability, their inseparability, right? Now, repentance, when we talk of repentance, repentance is more than just acknowledging sin, right? I know many of us know that, and if you don't, I want you to know that, right? It's not just a simple, well, I know I'm a sinner, because I know a lot of people who know that they're sinners that would then tell you, and I love my sin, because it's fun, and I'm going to continue living in my sin, because it's fun, I enjoy it, feels good, right? So repentance isn't just as simply, I know I'm a sinner, right? To repent means to, to what? It means to, to turn, right? To forsake. So repentance is a turning from sin. doesn't mean you stop sinning, right? Because all of us are sinners, right? Those of us who are saved are sinners, right? And we'll continue to sin until the day we die, right? But as believers, we should, what we should hate our sin. I hate my sin. I don't want to sin. You know, Paul, uh, when he has that interchange, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I, I hate my sin is what he says, right? I don't want to do it, and when I do it, I hate it even more, right? Okay. So as believers, right, we're still sinners, and we're going to continue to sin. But it's how we feel about our sin. It's what we do with our sin, right? To repent means to turn from it. It means to forsake it. Do you hate your sin, right? And when you turn from sin, when one repents, one turns from sin, one must turn to something else. I mean, if you're driving down the road, right, and your wife says you're going the wrong way, which happens to me all the time, and I repent from driving down right, the wrong way, right? I turn from it. It means I have to go someplace else, right? And that someplace else is, is Christ, right? Now listen, if we don't turn from sin, if one doesn't turn from sin, okay, one cannot turn to Christ, okay? So if you... If you love your sin, you don't love Christ. In fact, if you love your sin, you cannot love Christ. If you want your sin, you cannot have Christ. Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, um, speaks directly to this truth that the love of sin and the love of Christ are mutually exclusive because you cannot have one and the other. Matthew 6, um, starting in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your treasure is your sin, that's where your heart is. 
The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says here, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and your sin. You cannot have both God and your sin. Jesus says, you can't love your sin and have me. You can't love your sin because you can't love me if you love your sin. You see, repentance is necessary for spiritual redemption. Because Jesus says right here, if you love your sin, if you don't turn from your sin, you can't what? He says, you can't turn to me. We say repentance and faith again. Faith is what we turn from, from sin and we turn to Christ in faith, trusting in him completely and totally for redemption. Ruth, right, couldn't redeem herself, right? There was nothing that she was bringing to the table, right, to secure, to effect, to guarantee her redemption, right? She was turning to Boaz, completely trusting him for redemption. And when one turns, to sin, turns from sin and turns to Christ for redemption, one must turn to Christ completely trusting him and him alone for redemption, right? Not just redemption from sin, but redemption from God's just and righteous wrath on sin. One of the illustrations that I love, and maybe this helps you, it, it, it helps me think about this whole um, uh, repentance and faith and how it is necessary, how, how the, the two go hand in hand and you can't have one and you can't have uh, one without the other, is the illustration of, and, and I kind of change it a little bit, I think, from the guy that I had heard it from, but it's like me uh, coming home from a, a, a trip with work, right? And, and, and it usually is the same way. I've got, you know, I've got my suitcase, Okay, and I've got my laptop, uh, a bag as well. And if it's been a good trip, I'll usually have like a box of catering or something as well, you know. And so I'm walking in the door, and I've got my my roller bag on one hand, I've got my laptop case, and usually it's like haphazardly like wrapped around an arm or something like that. And then I've got like my catering box on the other hand, and I'm walking in the door, and my kids see me right, and they run to me and they're like, "Daddy!" You know, and they're all excited, and I want to what? I want to hug my kids. I want to embrace my children. But what do I have to do to embrace my children, right? I have to throw down the stuff, right? I can't, I can't hold on to all this stuff, right? Sin. I can't hold on to all this stuff and embrace my children at the same time, right? So I have to drop down this stuff. I have to let it go. I have to, I have to turn from it. I have to repent, right? if you will. That way I can embrace my children. The same thing is true when one repents and believes in Christ, right? They have to drop, they have to drop their stuff. They have to let go of it. They have to have to turn from it, right? Because if they don't, then they can't what? They can't embrace the Savior in faith. Also, when it comes to this this idea of repentance and faith, right? I hate the analogy. This is just just an opportunity for me to explain this. I hate the analogy. Um, not the analogy, the terminology, okay? I hate the terminology um, when someone says, you know, um, well, I've accepted Jesus as, as my Lord and Savior, okay? Now, now, listen, I'm not 
I, w- I want to be clear. I'm not doubting a person as, as a believer because they say that. And I don't want you to do the same. I don't want you to do what I mean, because I think that's wrong. Just because a person says, well, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Okay, don't doubt their salvation, all right? But I hate the terminology, okay, because I think it leads to sloppy theology, all right? Ruth didn't go to Boaz and say, I accept you, right? Um, Boaz didn't need to be accepted by Ruth, did he? No. Ruth needed to be accepted by Boaz. It's, it's like, uh, I was thinking about, uh, we used to, my wife and I used to live in Tulsa um, many years ago. And they've got this, uh, just down the road from where, where we live, they had Southern Hills Country Club, which is supposedly, I'm not a golfer, um, I've tried, I'm not good, but supposedly a fairly, you know, premier country club. I mean, they have this huge PGA event there every so many years, Right. And, I mean, if I drove to the gates, I've actually driven, I mean, I've been in the country club. We take a guy from work there all the time, so I've, I've driven through the security gate and all that, and checked in and all that. I mean, if I went to Southern Hills and I walked up to the main gate and I said, I accept you, they would look at me like a complete and utter fool, right? Because they would have to accept me, right, to, to let me in, not the other way around. And so it is with Christ, okay? Jesus doesn't need to be accepted by us. Right. We need to what? To be accepted by him. And how are we accepted by Christ? Through repentance and faith. And when God redeems a person, when God saves a person through repentance and faith, right? God doesn't save that person or redeem that person because that person repented and believed, but God saves that person because of what Christ did on the cross for that person. So even in that, repentance and faith is not a work, right? In fact, it's a gift. For his grace, you are saved through faith, which is what? Gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In fact, God commands, um, Jesus commands every person to repent and to believe. We see that in Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And it, it, it drives me batty when, when, when people argue um, against or, and, and some of it's just ignorance. I know that, Okay. People just aren't, aren't um, haven't been trained, they haven't studied, they haven't been fed, okay? So, so I understand that. But it, nonetheless, it drives me nuts when someone's like, well, repentance isn't necessary for salvation. I mean, it's not like, I mean, repent and believe. I mean, that's, you don't want to go out and holler, repent and believe, you know, when you're doing the gospel thing, right? That's not, that's not you want to you know, just love people and just show them how Jesus lived by how you live and all that, right? Well, what did Christ command in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, concerning specifically the gospel, right? In 115, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. What? Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the message of Christ. Not only is it the message of Christ, he commands it, and he commands it to all people, everywhere, for all times.
Let's go back to Ruth. Ruth chapter 3. Moving on to our third point in verses um, 10 through, specifically 10 through 13. Okay, verses 14 through 18, we're going to use that as kind of a transition. Okay, transitioning to next month, part, part two, if you will, of the redemptive God of Ruth. Okay, um, we'll, we'll, read, we'll read the entire text of that, 3, um, 10 through 18. And the point here is the promise, the promise of redemption. So again, starting in verse, uh, verse 10. So this is again after Ruth. She just goes to Boaz. She does as Naomi instructed, uncovers his feet, lays down at his feet. He wakes up, says, who are you? She tells him and pleads for redemption. And this is his response. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Again, not a daughter, right? Just a sign of age difference, okay? May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, I, I want to stop there and just comment on that, right? Again, I think that this is just more evidence of Ruth's faith, right? Uh, understanding that, that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, understanding the wishes of her mother-in-law, Ruth, to allow God to fulfill his promise through provision, through this, this kinsman redeemer, right? Again, this is just evidence of Ruth's own salvation, right? Again, picking up now in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not feel fear. He says, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. I am a goel, right? Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, okay? Um, maybe Boaz had, a, had an older brother. And we don't know. Again, we don't know the relationship between Boaz and Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Maybe they were brothers, and maybe there was a brother between them. Maybe they were cousins, and Elimelech had a brother. We, we don't know. All Boaz is saying is, listen, I am, I am one of your kinsmen redeemers, right? I mean, I can, I can do this. But yet there is one who, via um, lineage, is closer than I, okay? And so he says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, Boaz promises her, he says, I will redeem you. He says, lie down until the morning. So then uh, she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, the purpose of that is probably just to prevent gossip. What was that lady doing with Boaz in the middle of the night at the threshing floor? Oh no, you know, so nothing, again, nothing improper happened. And not only did nothing improper happen, they didn't want to give the appearance that anything improper happened, okay? Thus the instruction by Boaz to Ruth to leave before anyone could recognize you. Um, he says, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley, put it on her, then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? 
And then she told her all the man, all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth pleads for Boaz to redeem her. Redeem her through marriage. What does Boaz do? What's his response? Boaz says, Ruth, I promise you that I will redeem you. I will redeem you. You see, God, right, like Boaz, has made a promise to all who cry out to him in repentance and faith, pleading for redemption. God's promise is the same as Boaz's promise to Ruth. It's what? It's I will redeem you. God will save all who cry out to him for redemption through repentance and faith. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verses 22 through 31. This is Paul and Silas after they've been imprisoned. And it says, um, again, starting in verse, um, verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not arm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be redeemed. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What must a person do to be saved? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and that portion will be saved. It's a promise. We see that promise again echoed in Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, we'll look at verses uh, 8 through 31, which, which ultimately quotes Joel 2.32 and Acts 2.21. But again, Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, for everyone who turns from sin and drops it and lets it go and turns to Christ in faith, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do with this text? I've asked myself this week um, in part. We're not going to go on in Ruth next, next month, right? Um, we'll pick up in chapter 4, okay? And we're going to consider the procurement of redemption, right? We're going to consider the product of redemption. And then we're going to consider God's ultimate plan of, of redemption. But today, kind of stopping in the midpoint of the redemptive God of, of, of Ruth, what do we do with this? Well, one, if you find yourself in the position that Ruth was in, right, in need of redemption, Right? The command given by Christ in Mark 1.15 is what? It's to repent and believe. Let today be the day right, of your salvation. What if you've done that? Right? We find ourselves now, I am a believer. Right? I've already repented and believed. It's a great example of the gospel. We see it in Ruth. Right? What do we do? 1 John 1.19 I know you've heard me say this. I know you've heard Randy say this, and we're going to continue to say this, um, not just because you need to hear it, but I think that we need to hear it. I need to hear it. He needs to hear it. I'm going to speak for him, right? That repentance isn't just a one-time event, right? It's not. For the believer, right? we repent once unto salvation, and then we continue to repent. Why? Because as we discussed earlier, we do what? We continue to sin, if we continue to sin, we need to continue to repent. Not repenting unto salvation, but repenting unto sanctification, which is ultimately evidence of our salvation. So 1 John 1, um, 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, okay? John's speaking of believers here now, okay? These passages we looked at earlier, repent and believe, addressing unbelievers. Now he's addressing believers. And he says, if, if we confess our sins, Right? If we repent continuously as we should, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So one, evidence of salvation is continual repentance. And it's continual repentance that leads to sanctification. So what do we do with this, this text? What do we do with Ruth? If you're an unbeliever, you repent and believe. And today would be the day of your salvation. And if you're a believer, right, be encouraged to continue to repent and to do so unto sanctification where we become more and more like the one who has saved us. I love, I love a good redemptive story. We watch movies. If you're like my family, you probably watch way too many movies than you should, right? I like watching movies. My kids like watching movies. My wife likes, we like watching movies together, right? 
And we watch these movies that have these great redemptive stories. I could probably name a dozen, right? And you're watching it and you're, yeah, and you're getting into it. And the person is, is redeemed at the end and you're thrilled and you're excited and you go about your business and the thrill and the excitement leaves. And six months later, someone asks you if you've ever seen this movie and you're like, boy, maybe. At least that's what I do. I'm like, I don't know. My wife's like, yes, you saw it. You liked it. I'm, I don't remember, right? Okay, Ruth, right, is a phenomenal redemptive story. And it's a redemptive story, right, that when we read it, when we study it, when we hear it proclaimed, our souls should be thrilled. And they shouldn't be thrilled just because of Ruth's and Naomi's physical redemption, right? Our souls should be thrilled with excitement because of the spiritual redemption that this story points to. If you're a believer, this story that... It's a story, but it's true, okay? So I want to stop there, right? It's not, not just a, a kid's story. This actually happened, right? But this story that actually happened, right, points towards my, as a believer, your, as a believer, spiritual redemption. And that is something that should thrill our souls from the moment that we were saved until the moment that Christ returns or Christ calls us home. As I was studying this week, I can't tell you the, the joy and the excitement and the thrill that I experienced studying and considering and contemplating Ruth's physical redemption because I know that that story, right, told the story of my spiritual redemption. That story told the story of your spiritual redemption. If you're not a believer, right, this story tells the story of the spiritual redemption that Christ will give you if you call out to him with repentance and with faith. And as we think about this, and as we get excited about this, what is this going to do for us? Right? What well, should, should change the way we think. Right? And if it changes the way we think, then it should change the way we live. Right? So over the next month, as I'm going to close here in a moment in prayer, over the next month, right, the next day, however much time God gives you, right, don't just think of Ruth's story of redemption, right? Be excited by it. I mean, do that, right? But be excited about your story of redemption. How Jesus, right, the kinsman redeemer, right, stepped in and redeemed you. And next month, we're going to finish, right, the story of redemption for Ruth, right, which again is ultimately the story of redemption of us. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you are the kinsman redeemer. You're my kinsman redeemer. Lord, for all whom you have saved, you are our, theirs, our kinsman redeemer. So I praise you, Jesus, for doing for us that which we were incapable of doing for ourselves. And that's saving us. And that's saving us by satisfying God's just and righteous wrath against us, against us because of our sin. And you satisfied it, and you satisfied it completely. You satisfied it perfectly. And you've granted us repentance and faith that we might be saved because, not of our work, but because of your work. And I thank you, Lord, for just the excitement that, that I get from you when I consider not simply Ruth's story of redemption or Ruth's story of physical redemption, but when I consider, right, my story of spiritual redemption, Ruth's story of spiritual redemption, 
your story, Jesus, of how you have spiritually redeemed all whom you have saved. Lord, I pray that that excitement would never leave me, but in fact it would, it would change me. It would continue to conform my mind right, and my life right, to a, a life that completely and totally pleases you, a life that praises you, a life that boldly proclaims your grace and your mercy. That's not only my prayer for me, Jesus, but that is my prayer for us for your church, that we together would be excited about your redemption. And then that would change us in such radical ways that you would ultimately be glorified and that we would be sanctified as you continue to save and you continue to work in our lives. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. You alone are, are worthy. Ask these things in your name. Amen.